You're listening to Queers, a podcast about politics and culture with Simon Copland and Benjamin Riley. It's the 16th of August 2018. I'm Benjamin Riley, and welcome to Queers. Each episode, we talk our way through questions on a theme, and today we have an interview for you with disability and LGBTIQ activist Jax Jackie Brown. Jax wears quite a few hats. She's a writer, public speaker, spoken word performer, and a disability sex educator. She also represents her communities as part of advisory bodies including the Victorian Ministerial Council on Women's Equality and the Victorian Human Rights and Equal Opportunity Commission's Disability Reference Group. I know Jax through her work as a highly visible, outspoken, and articulate activist in Australia's queer communities, and she was kind enough to chat to me for the podcast about a whole range of topics at the intersections of queer and disability activism. We covered some really interesting areas in our discussion, so I hope you enjoy the interview. Thank you again so much for for doing this. I've been wanting to talk to you for the podcast for so long, and I think there, there are just kind of so many interesting things that come up at the intersection of of queerness and disability and i think i've from the outside have have been for some years now kind of maybe naively but have been kind of in awe of disability activism a bit and and uh particularly in the face of a lot of my frustration frustrations with queer uh, activism and advocacy, advocacy in Australia, but you know that may be completely naive and misguided. So I'll be, I'll be curious to kind of hear some of your thoughts on that. I thought a, a good place to start might be to hear about how you came to activism and advocacy. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, I guess I came to it gradually, um, in the sense that I was living in a small regional country town um, in northern New South Wales, and I. I guess I stumbled across white, straight, able-bodied um, cis feminism first as a kind of into starting to think politically about bodies and identity and power and how society constructs who we are. And so I was already kind of thinking about that stuff. And then I decided I really wanted to start to think about what it meant to be a wheelchair user and um, how that might shape what my life looked like. And I'd really only ever been brought up with a very kind of medicalized view of disability up until that point and had a lot of internal I mean how had you even been exposed to that sort of discourse yeah um well I was diagnosed with my impairment at two and from the age of two to when I was 14 my parents um did a lot of um interactions with the medical profession to try and fix me and make me um straighter kind of unbend my naturally bent kind of muscles and um, and make me as close to kind of an idea of normality as possible, even though sure. it was never really attainable. Yeah, so I guess I had a lot of that growing up in terms of mm. in our family dynamic, but also with my interactions with doctors and specialists and special school. I went to special school for a number of years, which is a particular kind of hell. Um, so I, ha- I hadn't really... Um, yeah, I hadn't really been supported in any kind of way to start to think about disability as something that was an identity and as something that you could feel not even I wasn't even at a point of pride at that point. I was I was just at a point of um a lot of internalized ableism and a lot of internalized shame. 
Mm. So to begin a process where I, I started to think about, well, actually, you know, the way the world is structured, the built environment, what that kind of looks like and people's attitudes to disability and to me as a disabled person, yeah, that was that was quite a process to kind of start to think through some of that stuff. Were there particular things or, or particular people or texts or anything like that that precipitated that change in your thinking? Yeah, I um, I remember um, quite clearly when I, the first time I picked up a disability rights text um, and I was going to TAFE in my small little country town and I, I decided I'd been thinking about, you know, um, as I said, feminism, I, I'd kind of started to think a little bit about queerness um, and I thought, I want to stop avoiding avoiding this thing, this wheelchair thing, this disability thing that I have. Um, I want to start to kind of try and start to think about that. And I remember I found this tiny, um, this tiny disability section in my local TAFE library um, and I picked up this book, which was a pretty middle-of-the-road kind of text. It was, you know, by white straight guys in, in wheelchairs who were the kind of forefathers of the disability rights movement. Sure. Um writing about the social model of disability. And so it wasn't the most intersectional text at all, but it had the idea in it of the fact that the way society is structured um, and people's ideas about disability profoundly shape um, disabled people's experiences of their bodies and minds. And that was quite a revolutionary idea. So for, for people who might not be aware of, I mean, as, as I understand it, the social model of disability is really at the, the kind of the heart of, of uh, not just disability activism, but, but you know, um, all sort of progressive discourses around disability. Um, could you maybe just uh, outline what that, what that is for people who might not be aware? Yeah, sure. So it, um, it arose out of the disability rights movement in the 1970s and 80s in Britain first and then it kind of spread across to the U.S., um, I would argue that we're kind of still waiting in Australia for it to, to hit here. Oh, sure. Um, but um, it's it's this idea that that someone has an impairment, which is their experience of their body and mind, which is um, different. And then on top of that impairment, they have their disability. And their disability is all the things that um, disable them, that don't enable them to live a full and equal life to other people. So things such as the very structures of buildings being inaccessible, having, you know, no ramp access, having stairs, but also people's attitudes to disability. So ideas that disability is a thing of inspiration or a terrible tragedy, mm. um, the kind of discourses that we see about it perpetuated in the media, those kind of things um, all radically shape how we experience the world and the kind of access to spaces and places and relationships um, and ideas that people with disabilities um, are often excluded from. So it's about thinking socially about the body as opposed to thinking medically about the body. So you uh, kind of were exposed to these these ideas and, and, and you know, read this book for the first time. What was the, the space between that and you... Uh, becoming uh, becoming a, a kind of an, an activist, I guess, being involved in in communities uh, around activism and and uh, really kind of putting yourself out there. Yeah, I guess I um I was lucky in the sense that I found this book, and then not long after finding this book, I found uh, another woman with a disability who was going to my local university at the time, 
Um, and I decided that I wanted to gatecrash the Women's Collective, even though I wasn't at uni, because that'd be where all the queers were. I was kind of right. <laughs> um, anyway, so she was involved in student, student politics and she happened to um, live a few streets away from me and um, she was a few years older than me. And she was starting to think through some of these ideas as well and discovering some of this new way of thinking about her body. Um, and so I had someone who I could talk through some of this stuff with and start to think about what did it mean for me and how would it shift the way I was feeling about my body and how how would it start to shift the way I, you know, saw some of the barriers that I was coming up against when I would go into our small country town and couldn't get in most of the shops and that kind of stuff where I used to feel really negative about that and really terrible about myself, I started to think about it as a structural issue. Um, so, yeah, I guess that the, the shift in my thinking kind of happened through reading stuff but also having somebody who was also living it and starting to think through some of these ideas and talk through it with someone else. Um, and so that was both those things kind of created the, the shift in my thinking. But then it really wasn't until... I moved to Melbourne over five years ago that I was really able to start to work in the space of disability rights because there really wasn't there really wasn't anything um, in my little country town yeah um, yeah yeah to do with disability rights and having that kind of um, discussion publicly. I mean, in, in moving to Melbourne, did you? I mean, you, your um, your writing and you, your speaking really kind of sits at the at the intersection of of queerness and and disability. Was that a space that that was there that you could discover, or, or do you really feel like you've been a part of of carving that space out in Australia? Um, yeah, I struggle with the idea that I'm a leader or any of that kind of stuff. But anyway, um, <laughs> I. Yeah, I, I guess I chose one of the reason why one of the reasons why I chose Melbourne is because a friend of mine, Kath Duncan, who is a woman with a disability and she's queer as well, she had started up a performance troupe called Quippings, which is a performance troupe of queer disabled people that were putting on shows at Hairs and Hyenas in, in Melbourne. And I heard about them and I thought, I've always been terrified of public speaking, I've always been terrified of performing, but one, I want to move out of my small country town because I dated most of the available <laughs> and it was a bit awkward to go out and about and two I, I wanted to start doing you know activism and doing the things that I'd always wanted to do but that I was terrified of doing and so I um, thought Melbourne is a good place to kind of land because there is a group of you know theatre people creative people with disabilities who are already kind of doing some of this work and thinking about this stuff. How has it been, uh, you know, you, you've, you've since then certainly moved into more I'm, I'm trying. I'm, I'm trying to give a better word than mainstream, but but broader um, LGBTI spaces. I think in, in a in a, like I'm thinking, for example, we we hung out a bit at the Better Together conference earlier in the year. How have you felt that those spaces that might not necessarily have thought about disability much? Um, how has your activism, your work, been received in those kind of those LGBTI spaces? Um, look, I mean, I think it's starting to ableism and, and disability rights and access and inclusion, whatever words you want to use around that, um, are starting to be part of a conversation now in the queer community. But I think that there, there still is a real long way to go to have a real interrogation of, of what, um, what that actually means. How do we translate that to access? Mm. Um, what does that actually look like? 
you know, often queer parties now will say no, no racism, no transphobia, no ableism, but then will be still at inaccessible venues um, mm. and be not particularly open to a critical conversation about how do we actually start to think about who's included and who's not in these spaces. So I think that that it's um, more on the agenda than it ever has been before, and and that's in part because of my work, but there's also a number of LGBTIQ disabled people out there, particularly in Melbourne, who are also doing a lot of this work as well. But I, but I think that there's still a long way to go to, to as a LGBTIQ community to start to really um, explore some of these ideas that disability brings up. I'm interested uh, in, in terms of exploring those ideas. I feel like part of what excites me about uh, you know the the admittedly kind of limited reading that I've done around this stuff and and, and chatting with uh, uh, queer people with disabilities. Like that, that seems to me there's, there's a lot of really kind of natural overlap there in terms of like just thinking about bodies and thinking about difference. Do you, I suppose I'd be curious to hear uh, for for you know for an idiot who doesn't really kind of uh, know what thinking in this space looks like. What sort of work are people doing, and what sort of conversations are happening around you know queering bodies in a way that 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 involves uh, all kinds of bodies? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think I think there is often um, a natural overlap between thinking about identity and power and the way in which discourses shape how we experience our bodies and how we think about our bodies. I mean, I think disabled people continue to be pathologised and LGBTIQ people have a history of that pathologization as well um, and finding ways of building resilience and pride and and and. Um, social movements in the face of that. So I definitely think there's some really strong parallels, but I don't often think that a lot of LGBTIQ people um, interrogate those strong parallels often. Um, I still think that, that there's often this assumption that because we're queer, we're thinking really radically about bodies and identities, but still it's from a normative framework a lot of the time of what is desirable and what is, you know... Um, how do we present as queer people and what does that look like and how are we read as queer? And when you're you're disabled and when you're visibly disabled, I think that my body and the body of a lot of my, you know, queer disabled friends really troubles this notion of what what how do we how do we perform queerness when disability is often assumed to um, mean that we don't possess a sexuality. Um mm. Yeah, so I think that there's often that that kind of tension. I often get read as <laughs> um, straight, even though I think that I'm flagging queer pretty hard. Um, I would say extremely hard. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I like to make it pretty obvious and visible. It's great. Because it makes me feel comfortable and confident in myself and my body, but also because I feel like I often get read as um, not belonging to that community and I mm. want it to be really apparent. But still, I get, I get assumed to... Um, yeah, be het, and um, still, sadly, sometimes that assumption comes from other queer people. It seems like one of the big differences is in is around visibility. You know that that I think one of the kind of weird tensions at the heart of a lot of queer politics is that uh, you know we can sort of invisibilize ourselves in that sense. If if not every, not all of us, but um, uh, in certain circumstances, if we if we choose to, whereas in a, in a lot of cases, uh, disabilities is is very very visible and very and kind of easily easily read in particular ways. Mm, I mean, I think one of the 
the challenges and one of the great things about both the LGBTIQ community and the disability community is the diversity of identities and the diversity of experiences that both communities hold. Mm. Um, so I think that often for people with invisible disabilities, their experiences of um, being assumed to not have impairments and having to disclose and having to come out, in a sense, sure, in various sure. different spaces, um, really parallels queer people's experiences, but also having that um, privilege to then pass as non-disabled um, in a similar way that, you know, um, people who who aren't visibly queer can then enter spaces and, and be presumed to be het or cis or whatever. So, so yeah, I think that, there, that there's definite parallels between those two kind of experiences. But I don't, I don't necessarily think that – I think it's a really fraught space for a lot of disabled people um, and particularly for people with disabilities who haven't been politicised about their identities – and so might still carry a lot of shame about what it means to disclose their impairments or what it means to, you know, come out as disabled in a sense. And so will often, you know, put a lot of energy and a lot of effort into trying to pass as able-bodied and not actually asking for the kind of access requirements or the kind of changes in their workplaces or um, in their relationships that they might need to actually be able to have the kind of supports that they really need to have to 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 live the lives that they want to live so yeah I think that that often can be a real challenge when people yeah I mean I was I was on a panel just last week with somebody who she had an impairment but she was choosing not to identify as being disabled and part of that reasoning was that she didn't want to attract the the stigma and the difficulties around that and it was a really difficult conversation to try and have about yeah how do we support somebody to make those choices but also how do we have a conversation about the value of having a politicized identity mm. and working through some of that those negative ideas that she might have internalized because of her impairment yeah i mean you put when you put it that way it's like it's so explicitly like like queerness in in the sense of you know those are Obviously, obviously, the same conversations we have around around coming out, and mm-hmm. they can be you know fraught fraught in really similar ways. Mm-hmm. I was I was wondering particularly how that might play out around uh, around mental illness and and mental health issues. Given given, I mean, I must admit, I I, I don't have a, a really kind of in depth understanding about the politics of mental illness within disability spaces, and I'm sure there's there's a, a lot of complexity there. But particularly when we we talk a lot about LGBTIQ people and LGBTIQ communities being kind of at risk of uh, of mental illness. We we had yeah. a lot of those conversations around the the postal survey, for example. Uh, I don't know. It, it seems that there's um, some tensions there to me between like talking about ourselves as kind of vulnerable to these things that perhaps in in another in a disability framework could could be seen as things that we should be. Uh, thinking about empowering people to to live with does mm. that does that make sense yeah yeah and I mean I think there's this there's this thing with disability in that it's often assumed that if you have you know depression or anxiety or whatever because you're disabled that you have it because you have a disability and not Spin your passion into a business of Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. 
the world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. That you ha- might have high rates of it because you're experiencing ableism and all these kind of mm. barriers in society in a similar way that queer people have, you know, high rates of anxiety and depression as well because of the the simultaneous oppression that we're experiencing. So, yeah, I think that it's it's often a really difficult space and I know definitely in my own personal life, like I have a history of anxiety and depression and it, um, so does uh, my family members. And when I was first dealing with that as a young person, as a teenager and trying to seek mental health support, you know, I had... Uh, quite extensive ex- um, experiences with the mental health profession and a number of different doctors and specialists just saying to me, you know, you're just experiencing depression and anxiety because you're you're disabled and putting it back onto um, being a wheelchair user and not mm. actually wanting to think about the supports I might need or the medication I might need to kind of, you know, manage my mental health issue. And so I think it can be a real, a, a really really fraught space for many people with disabilities to actually come out about that and start to talk about, you know, the social context in which we can feel overwhelmed and we can um, have mental health issues and how do we kind of contextualise those as as not the problem of the individual but as the, a problem within a societal context that puts us under a lot of a lot of pressure. Yeah, and I think particularly with the NDIS, like everyone is saying that that is, you know, that's the one thing people with disabilities need to live full and meaningful lives. And as we know, there's a lot of problems with it. Mm. But um, people with mental health issues are being completely left out of that space. So, um, yeah, it creates a whole system of inequity where if people have diagnosable physical impairments with, you know, clear necessary and reasonable adjustments, then they can get support. But if you have um, other things happening in your life, then you kind of, you know, have to advocate really hard for anything, basically. Do you think that the uh, the the way that physical impairments have been, or I guess the way that the social model of disability has been used to advocate for changes that are necessary for, you know, for example, for wheelchair access, are, are there lessons to be taken from that to apply to, uh, I suppose, uh, advocacy around mental illness or advocacy around, yeah, let's say let's say mental illness uh, specifically, because I, I, they just seem like they those discourses happen in very very different ways. Mm. I mean, I think one of the things, even though I I really believe in the social model and it is a key idea that that changed my life and definitely kind of created an activist out of me and I'll be forever grateful for that there are there are things that it doesn't do so well as a model and that is because it comes from cis white wheelchair using men who weren't particularly thinking intersectionally and were really quite heavily focused on the structural barriers to employment um, to education and didn't really want to explore what they deemed as the personal side of impairment. 
So there's been really big struggles in the disability rights movement around how do we actually start to think about, you know, people with invisible impairments, people with mental health issues, people with intellectual um, disabilities, and how do we get the social model to really adequately start to respond to those issues as issues of societal change and attitudinal change because historically the social model has been really good at explaining why we need accessible transport, why we need more employment and quite shit at, at letting people explore other kinds of impairments and also what they might need in the home or what they might need in their, in their intimate lives mm. to feel equal. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I, I think that we can use the tenets of it. We can use the, its capacity to get us to think about the way in which society includes and excludes particular kinds of people and the values that it puts on different kinds of people. And we can use that to then bring it into different spaces and get people to start to think politically about the, those experiences. And I, I guess that sort of leads naturally into the potential opportunities that that examining that model or, or, or alternatives to that model through a queer might, what sort of opportunities that might bring? Yeah, and I mean, I think, sadly, a lot of disability spaces, in my experience, are pretty hostile to queer experiences and queer voices. And I, I think a lot of that comes out of the pressure on disabled people to uh, minimise whatever difference they might currently have and kind of become more straighter than straight and con more conservative than conservative because they, they've been told not to kind of stand out more than they mm, already sure. do. Um, and uh, often for a lot of people who have grown up with their impairments, that pressure is quite profound to, um, you know, aspire to, to a heteronormative life um, and, and downplay any emphasis on your disability or impairment. But the, the difficulty with that, of course, for me as a queer person and for a lot of other people that live intersectional identities is um, a lot of disability spaces become quite quite conservative and have a lot of assumptions in them around, you know, heterosexuality and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, and so can be quite, yeah, quite resistant and hostile to, to a queering of disability and to, to, think, to thinking about it as an opportunity to really start to think about the ways in which bodies and minds are shaped by the society in which we live. Which isn't to say I haven't found fabulous queer disabled spaces <laughs> and, you know, people that are thinking really deeply about this. Um, but I think as a matter of course, I'm always on guard when I enter a, a kind of mainstream-ish disability space because I know that I'll be possibly the most radical voice in the room and having to kind of push people to, to think a bit differently about things, yeah. In your, uh, you know, this is obviously a, a, a space where you're doing a lot of work, so so this this stuff is being talked about and, and, and people are um, thinking about this and, and working on this. Do you feel as though in the time that you've been uh, speaking about these issues and, and uh, writing about them and, and, you know, being out and about in the community and talking to people, do, do you see change, positive change? In the disability community, I mean, I guess it's hard because I know that I, I'm in a position of privilege in the sense that I live in Melbourne and have access to a lot of, you know, fabulous queer disabled people and 
I'm kind of living in a little bit of a bubble socially, deliberately in that sense. Sure, yeah. Um, and, and, and so I wonder about, you know, regional spaces still. What are they like for disabled queer people? What, is, what does community look like there? And I also wonder about the, the service industry, which a lot of disability services exist in to make disabled people enmeshed in a world of different services coming in to do different jobs to you. Um, mm. at different points in your day and your week. And many people with disabilities live very, very rigid, structured lives, not out of their own choosing, but because they exist in a system that says on a Tuesday from this time to this time you will do X. Mm. Um, you know, for many people that require um, support to do personal tasks such as getting dressed and getting in and out of bed, that kind of thing, they have to go to sleep at a particular time and get up at a particular time regardless of what they would like to do so yeah I'm aware of that the, the changes in the spaces that I'm in what I see may be very different to the experiences of a lot of disabled people even with the NDIS coming in and supposedly giving us choice and control over mm. our lives and you know a flexibility in terms of what supports look like and so I, I and I'm I guess I'm I'm wary as well because I think a lot of a lot of new industries are popping up um, providing services for people with disabilities because the NDIS is supposedly providing us with more um, choices over our lives. But then what does that look like for disabled people? Are we really getting choices? And how is it just creating more industries on which disabled people um, getting funding and, and providing money to? Supposedly it's supposed to make us active consumers, but I, I guess I'm still a cynical activist in the sense of like, it can capitalism be trusted well, yeah. to bring that change? That's it. I mean, I'm a you know as a as a uh, a Marxist uh, myself. I it, it's I I find it hard not to see market mechanisms as sort of inherently exploitative in in some ways. Yeah, yeah. So so yeah. I guess I guess I'm seeing disability talked about in spaces that I I hadn't se- that I haven't seen before. And I'm starting to see it be included as an aspect of diversity, you know, by organisations that might invest in diversity training. And they're starting to think maybe disability is part of the list of diversities we should be thinking about. But I wonder about the commercialisation of that and the commercialisation of what is supposed to be a radical politic about changing the very structure of society and changing Mm. the way in which people think about identities and bodies and power to be about, you know, a tick box of diversity where we go, okay, we've covered that now. We understand how to be a tiny bit more accessible and how to make sure we we might invest in a some form of ramp or something or create a disability action plan with a few actions that don't really mean anything. So I guess I wonder about how we actually hold on to this idea of needing to change the way in which the built environment looks and the way in which people with disabilities are represented in the media and how we think about desirability and how we don't let those radical messages become one sentence kind of um, mm. easy to swallow things that don't actually create meaningful change. I, I, I'm conscious of keeping you too long, but that your, your last comment just made me realise that we, we haven't actually talked about sex at all which or, or oh. ex- other than sort of briefly touching on it which which is 
seems like a kind of uh, a, a core point of intersection for getting queers broadly thinking about what sex and desirability means outside yeah. of really kind of normative bodies and normative ideas. Sure, I'd love to talk about sex. I know. No I, could, ever, I, actually, no I could have done this whole thing about sex. Like, No one honestly. ever asked me about that anymore. Um, <laughs> please, um, let's talk about it. Yeah, I mean, I guess, I guess growing up with a disability and, as I said at the beginning, you know, coming through a lot of a, a space of shame around what my body meant and what my supposed value and desirability meant to other people and to myself, it took me a long time just to learn ways to actually connect with my body. And I think for people who have been taught that they are wrong because of whatever marginality they're carrying, it can take a lot of unlearning to start to actually connect to your body and your experience and believe this idea that you're worthy and desirable. Yeah, I. it was only a couple of years ago that I realised that I'd really internalized a lot of this stuff to the point that I didn't even realize how much I had and I was realizing you know that when I was having sex or when I was masturbating or or any of that that I was kind of above myself watching myself and thinking is the way my body is responding are the noises that I'm making in line with what's supposedly desirable from a you know cis able-bodied kind of Mm. perspective and it, it took me a while to, even with my partner who I've been with for a few years, to start to go, actually, I'm going to try and inhabit my body and start to learn what it feels like and how it wants to move and what sounds I might want to make and how to, how to talk about sex and how to talk about my body. I, partic- I think for many disabled people, we're not taught sex ed. We're not taught about our bodies. And if anyone talks to us about it, it's through this medicalized lens of, you know, what's wrong with you, or how you should try and minimize your difference, how you should help people kind of see past that, all that crap. And so I, I realized that I hadn't that I hadn't developed a language in which to talk about what I wanted and what I didn't want. I think it's really important that we learn to say no as well as yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, I I hadn't developed this kind of way of talking about what I desired and what I liked that was grounded in pleasure, that was grounded in a sense of embodiment. And I, I think that for disabled people, I would love to see them get comprehensive sex ed that looked at their bodies as a site of strength and not as a thing of weakness or flaw or shame, but started to think about, you know, what does it feel like to live in your body or mind? How do you connect with that in a way that that makes you feel good, that allows you to feel pleasure? Like, whatever that pleasure is for you, if that's kink, cool. How how, How are you supported and enabled to start to explore what that is. And I think for many people with disabilities, we've just got such a history of disassociation and shame from mm. from our very embodiment and what it means to move through the world, let alone what it means to explore our bodies as sites of desire, that it's really quite radical work to start to learn to inhabit 
your body and call it home. Oh, yeah. I feel like, like that's I, I I just think that's so exciting that and and c- can be extended out to to everyone really. I th- I think sh- shame is something that we we don't we don't often talk about it being sort of carried in the body. Um, mm-hmm. And and I think that that's true for all queers. Really, I mean, I don't know. I don't want to make a, a, a claim as big as that, but but I think that that's a very a very common experience, and that given how normative how strong kind of normative ideas around bodies and and particularly sexual bodies are uh within society i think those are lessons that 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 really should should be taken on by within queer spaces more broadly i think there's a there's there's a lot to learn there yeah yeah and i I guess i realized when i was thinking through that stuff that i i had really learned to carry my body and hold my body in a very particular way so as to kind of minimise the ways in which it might move or want to move that are different to the norm. Mm. And so, you know, like I would I get leg tremors sometimes and I would go to a lot of lengths to kind of stop that happening because I didn't want to be seen to, you know, be moving in a way that would attract attention or whatever. Or, you know, like even moving in my chair in different ways or sitting in different positions in my chair, in my wheelchair. Like I started to think about the ways in which I had been holding my body in a way that would be socially acceptable to other people who might see a wheelchair user and go, okay, cool, she's moving in a way that is expected. And I think that we can internalise so much of those ideas without even realising that we've internalised them. Yeah, I think working through some of this stuff is a lifelong ongoing project. I don't feel like I've reached a point of pride and resilience that doesn't need continuous work. Totally. Um, I think I think when we live in a society that doesn't value us as queer people or disabled people, you know, it, it can often be those most intimate spaces in our lives in which that kind of comes up for us. So yeah, I I really do feel like having an array of sex toys and having a, a beautiful partner um, and finding time amongst our parenting life um, <laughs> to to you know connect with each other and with our own bodies is is really quite um powerful and and yeah an act of um resilience and activism as well i think there's something in the idea that that like sex is a space that shows up perhaps more than anywhere else what hard work liberation is and what yep. ongoing work it is yep um, yeah. Thank you so so much, Jax. That was that was so awesome, and I'm glad that we took some time at the end to talk about sex because I just I think that stuff is so fantastic to talk about and and like really just exciting exciting work. Yeah, yeah, and I feel like we could have just talked about sex the whole time, and I could I have weaved my politics <laughs> into my sex. That would have been really cool. <laughs> anyway, if we ever do this again, we'll just stay on the sex topic. Oh my god, we 100 100 percent should. <laughs> yeah, yeah, cool. Ben here again, I hope you enjoyed the interview. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with a regular episode of Queers, but in the meantime, if you'd like to get in touch, you can do so via email at queerspodcast at gmail.com, or we're on Facebook and Twitter at Queers Podcast. I'm on Twitter at Ben C. Riley, and Simon is at Simon Copland on Twitter, and at Simon Copland Writer on Facebook. You can find episodes of the podcast on our website, queerspodcast.com, or subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, where if you rate and review us, it will help others find the show. Finally, if you're enjoying Queers, tell a friend. 
Word of mouth is the best way we have to find new listeners. Thanks, as always, for listening. Earbuds, Melbourne's podcast network. Earbudsnetwork.com